What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. Michael Seibel, welcome to the Indie Hackers podcast. Thanks for having me. Uh, you are the CEO of Y Combinator, or uh, you're also, I guess, a managing director, a partner. What's the appropriate title for you at YC? God. Who knows? I help the companies. <laughs> you help the companies. You do the job. I help uh, the companies, yes. <laughs> YC is kind of the original startup accelerator. Uh, it almost needs no introduction. It's by far the most successful and prestigious of the startup accelerators that exist. It was started by Paul Graham in 2005, and since then, he sort of passed on the torch, and now you guys are funding like six or 700 companies a year at this point, which is crazy. Because when I went through YC in 2011, it was like 40 companies. We were like, this is way too big. <laughs> it's crazy, not only how much bigger YC has gotten, how much bigger the startup community has gotten, how much more international YC has gotten. So it's now 50% international. We've got founders in almost any time zone. It's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun to help more people. One of the things that we think about, especially because we were alum, is, you know, how do we bring that great experience that we had to more people, people who maybe never thought they could do YC or raise money or do a startup? So, Yeah, you guys are reaching a ton of people. Um, and I've seen like the international trend sort of expand as well. Like Indie Hackers listeners, I think it's barely 30% of the people listening to this podcast or signing up for the website are in the U.S. And most of them are not in Silicon Valley. They're just everywhere starting startups. And YC itself has sort of reflected the same sort of trends. I got like a million questions I want to ask you. I think it's cool that you're in you're in this position. <laughs> First, let's talk about like indie hackers itself because uh, we were talking before the show. Like this show is mostly listened to by bootstrappers. These are people who build businesses without ever having raised a dime. But I think when companies go through YC, the emphasis is obviously like kind of on the opposite. Everyone's encouraged to go to demo day, present their companies to investors, and raise a ton of money. Do you think indie hackers and bootstrappers are sort of handicapping themselves? by trying to build online businesses without raising money? What's your, what's your take on this approach? I think the first thing I would say is that one of the most successful founders that I know who, who did YC uh, was an indie hacker himself. He, he was the founder of a company named Instant Domain Search. And basically, it was, <laughs> as you say, you type in a domain you want to buy. It tells you if the domain's available and similar words to it and redirects you to GoDaddy and he makes a commission. And... For almost the entire time I've been in the YC community, he's been running that site and making real money with almost no work every month, tens of thousands of dollars. So I think that, you know, we have YC founders, uh, Zapier is a perfect example, where they raised a million bucks on Demo Day and they never raised again um, until years and years and years and years later. So I think there's all types of different models on how you want to raise a company. I don't really want to judge what people want to do. I think the thing that I try to figure out for founders is what's your goal and how do you match the method um, that you want to run your company to the goal of your company? And I think where founders kind of get screwed up is they often think they can innovate everything. And it turns out that like it's really hard to innovate everything. So if your goal is to build a company as big as Google, for example, you probably can't innovate the funding model. 
And so, you know, a lot of the conversations I have with founders is like, how do you pick where you innovate? How do you pick where you copy? How do you figure out where to put your entrepreneurial energy? And how do you kind of unpack some of the assumptions that a lot of people have when it comes to raising money from investors? Because if you want to build a large company, more often than not, you have to figure out how to interact with investors. And I mean, a lot of people just have really bad assumptions about how that works. Well, there are a lot of bad stories about investors on this show and a lot of fear expressed from founders that investors are going to push them to make bad decisions, push them into building a company that's much bigger than can really be sustained uh, at a profitable level. I want to push back on that. I want to push back on that. I'll ask you live on this podcast. You mentioned that you're in Brooklyn right now. That's awesome. Yep. I need you to go and take something valuable in the apartment that you're in right now, walk over to the Brooklyn Bridge and throw it off the bridge. I need you to do <laughs> Well, I'm staying at an Airbnb, so no, I'm no. liable to uh, replace this kind of stuff. Yeah, who cares? Yeah, I'm not saying it's a good decision. I'm just saying that's what I need you to do, and I'm going to use my words to get you to do that. Yeah, I mean, I get your point. As a founder, I can ignore you as an investor giving me this yes, bad advice. it's words. Like, like, I can't, I'm not in Brooklyn. I can't hold a gun to your head. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, that's true. And so these are words coming from a person who has presumably invested millions of dollars in your company. Who cares? Who, cares? who to some degree that's holds your fate in their hands, who you might feel obligated to. Yeah, that's your, that's your inner weakness. I'm sorry. Like, that's the cop out because you. The founder who thinks that way is the founder doesn't understand the arrangement they got into. The job of that investor is to manage someone else's money and to make that client money back. The relationship you got into that with the investor is to produce a return for that investor. The advice, the value add, all that other stuff is take it or leave it. Your responsibility is not to take the advice. Your responsibility is to treat that investment ethically and to try as hard as possible to make more money for that investor. Where founders get confused is when they think their investors are parents. And not even parents, perfect parents, perfect mentors. It's like perfect life guides. It's like, come on, that's magical thinking. That doesn't exist. Like your investor is not going to get the advice right. More often than not, your investor hasn't even started a company. They don't even know what the hell they're talking about. So I just, I, I reject that line of thinking because like, if I can convince you to do something that you know is bad with your, for your company after giving you money using my words, sorry. Like, if that doesn't kill you, something else is going to kill you in the startup game. Okay, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about what kills startups. You've obviously advised thousands of startups over the years, many of which have been super successful. And I think the obvious question for you is what separates the successful startups from the ones that fail? And I've seen you talk about this quite a lot. And I think the approach you come from is usually to sort of flip it around and ask not what do you need to do to succeed? Because there's a million different ways to succeed. Usually ask like, what do you need to do to fail? Because it turns out there's only a handful of reasons that most startups fail. And you're doing pretty good if you can keep that list of reasons in your head and then just avoid most of those mistakes. So what are the most common mistakes that kill startups? So, you know, Justin Kahn, my old co-founder, he always talked about cargo culting. And what was so funny is that, you know, in my interest of not looking dumb, for the longest time, I didn't know what cargo culting was. And, but I would <laughs> nod along and be like, yeah, cargo culting, that sucks. And I finally asked him, like, what's, what's cargo culting? And it's basically like copying the people around you, but copying the wrong things. And it basically comes from not understanding what actions the people that you're around 
are leading to success are the methods where success are being created versus what actions are the results of success. So you give a really specific example, right? If you're building a good company, a lot of investors are going to want to invest in you. And you might raise a very large round at a really great price. Most founders will think that that round is the important thing. And they won't dig deeper and figure out what did this company figure out in its business that gave it the leverage to raise that round. The round was the result of the company doing something right. I should be studying what the company did right, not just taking away the simple thing, if I raise a lot of money, I win. And I think that what I have to be careful about here is that my instinct sometimes is to teach this stuff like math. Like you should be able to teach anyone algebra, right? Like it, it ain't that complicated. But what I've come to learn is that learning these lessons while dealing with all the stress of doing a startup, while being in a world where like most people are just wrong with their core hypotheses, it's a little bit more like yelling at somebody who's a good high school basketball player, but it didn't make the NBA. That doesn't seem right. It's like that doesn't that doesn't seem moral. It doesn't seem right. It's like yeah, you need a lot of lucky breaks to make the NBA, right? Like, and so you know, whenever I kind of get too preachy, I kind of sit back and be like, look, this is hard. This is really hard. This isn't like becoming a successful lawyer. This isn't like getting into a good school. Like. The odds of success on this one are so low that like most people are going to be getting it wrong most of the time. Right. And you have this unique vantage point as an investor where you get to see thousands of companies and you can just very soberly, unemotionally stop and consider the odds. You can ask yourself, what percentage of companies need to succeed for me to get you know, a return on my investment? But as a founder, it's kind of like you've got that one thing. You've got your startup and it's either a one or a zero. It's going to succeed or it's going to fail. And... You don't really care what the odds are. Like you just want to succeed. You know, that's a very yeah. emotional position to be in, I think. What else is in that that list of things that founders should be worried about that yep. commonly make startups fail? I fear what I'm about to say is a series of things that people have heard over and over and over again. So here goes. One, you should be able to build your own product. Like the founding team should have the technical talent to build the product probably one of the most common reasons why a company doesn't get into YC. Two, damn if it's helpful if you've experienced the problem yourself. Three, you can't be afraid to charge money if you're providing a service for, to someone. Four, you can't be afraid. You can't, and, and let's be clear, that doesn't mean you can't feel fear, but fear can't be your primary decision-making variable, right? I see so many people who they're encountering this world and they're basically saying, I just want to run away from fear. Everything that seems scary, I want to not do. And it's, everyone who succeeds in this game has to deal with things that scare the crap out of them. <laughs> and like in many ways, like if a startup is like a burning I don't know, a burning house. You're a firefighter. Your job's to run into the house, not, not to run away from the house. <laughs> and, and, and so within YC, when I see founders make the most destructive mistakes, they're almost always driven by fear or envy. Fear, I don't want to do this thing. It's uncomfortable, so I'm going to not think about it. Or envy, 
that person has something that I want or that I think that I want. Money, employees, office, da 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 da. Like, I want to go get it. It's weird because so many people come into the startup game coming from a community, whether it's like a place of work or a university. And like in that community, as long as they were like put themselves in the like cool kids, the smart kids, they would they would win. Whereas like in our game, almost everyone loses. And so I think, you know, in the fight to get into a good college, you're looking at what your peers are doing. In a fight to get that Facebook or Google internship in college, you're looking at what your peers are doing. And in the startup, that exact same technique almost always screws you. Like you're playing a single person game, you know. If you want to be Michael Jordan, you're a high school basketball player, and you're looking at what your peers are doing, none of your peers are going to make the NBA. Like, they absolutely can't be your guys. <laughs> and, and, and I think that's what really runs people astray. Um, and let's be clear. I think it hurts investors just as much as founders. I see investors copying their peers way too much as well. You mentioned that startup founders often have to run toward their fears. What are your fears as the CEO and a partner at Y Combinator? I think my biggest fear in the startup game in general that we have to deal with in YC is that startups went from being not popular to being, I might describe, too popular. So I think that there were a lot of people when YC started who didn't have their risk-reward ratio correct and therefore were afraid of doing startups when they shouldn't have been. And a lot of YC was designed around, no, you can do it. You can do this, right? I think in this kind of stock market and crypto run-up, some people are looking at startups as either a resume item or a get-rich-quick scheme. And those people are toxic to the ecosystem. And YC is so large now, we're part of the ecosystem. So those people can be toxic to us. And... How do we make sure that we're not accepting those people within our community is a big thing. Because, like, I, I think that a lot of people think about YC kind of incorrectly. You know, I think when people look at an Ivy League university from the outside in high school, they think that, like, the teachers matter. They think that, like, the degrees matter. They think the classes matter, right? And then once you go through a good university, you realize the peers matter. The peers are what drive you. I think the same thing happens at YC. From the outside, people think, oh, Michael's giving you the great advice. It's like, no, I'm putting you in a community of people who you respect, who can support you and who you can support them, and who hopefully can be additive to the process of you trying to succeed. And if I don't get that pool of people right, I can break it. So I think that's probably the number one thing I'm afraid of is that that's a new challenge. That wasn't the challenge YC faced in 2005. If you were crazy enough to do a startup in 2005, boom, we're here. Now that it's mainstream, it's different. Well, I think you've developed a skill set that would be valuable for lots of founders. I mean, you're looking at people who are applying and you're saying, who are the right people to put into this peer group who are going to make things better for their peers and have like you know great companies? But if you're an individual founder looking at your own company, you kind of got to ask the same question, you know, like, am I working on the right thing? Am I the right person to do this? And so I, I wonder what you've learned about evaluating those things that other people could also learn when asking those questions about themselves. So spiritually, it's, it's similar, but the difference is, is that I get to learn faster. So like, I don't think a founder can use the same technique that I use because 
I get to read 800 applications. I get to interview God knows how many companies, at least 800 companies every batch, right? My group has 100 companies in it. So I get to learn in parallel and a founder doesn't. So while it's kind of like similar similar problems, like the solution techniques very different. As long as the founder has technical skills or technical co-founder and has something that's irrationally getting them to focus on just one problem and one customer, I think generally they do okay. Like generally they they can figure some stuff out. It doesn't mean they're going to win, but generally they can kind of get off, you know, at a minimum of base hit, like at a minimum, they can get the damn thing going. I think sometimes what I'm seeing founders now is that like, oh, if something doesn't work in three weeks, I have to switch. Or I can just do this with no code. I can just hire some overseas engineers. Software is not important. And it's like, oh, you're removing some of the base things. Like one of the base things is that software is eating the world. You got to be able to create software. Another base thing is that you have to learn about the customer's needs. It takes time. This isn't overnight. And so it's kind of like trying to bake a cake, but trying to remove all the ingredients and still expecting a cake. It's like, if you don't have flour and eggs, it ain't going to be a fucking cake. Like you can't re- remove some things. And, and I see a lot of founders trying to remove as much as possible because they just want to get to the end. I just want to be rich. I just want to be famous. And it's like, woof, do another career. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I like these lists of, of basic things, though, because I think we often get addicted to novel advice. You know, we want to hear something we've never heard before. We want like that secret ingredient, that secret key. And it, like really at the fundamentals will get you so far. And it's really easy to ignore them because it's like, yeah, 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 I've heard all that. But it's like you're not doing any of it. And then there's like a whole other set of people who haven't heard any of that to begin with. Like most people who are getting started, like make the most basic mistakes. And so I think it's worth repeating that kind of stuff ad nauseum until people can actually do it. You know, it's funny because the Stripe founders came to talk to YC. And at some point they had this aside and they were just kind of like, you know, like we did all this stuff, but like. If, if we can do it, you can do it. We're not that smart. And I saw all these founders look at them being like, no, but you guys are like legends. And then I realized something, you know, being disciplined is way more powerful in this game than being smart. Like, because we're an execution game, being disciplined was so important. And like, what was so funny was that like, the Stripe founders had a hypothesis and then they tested it in a disciplined manner that like almost a scientist would. I remember a really simple thing. People ask them, how do you price? It's like, oh, well, we're a startup in payments. Of course, we've got to be cheaper than the competition. And they were like, no, we were trying to verify if these developers and early stage companies desperately needed our product. So we charged higher than the competition. Now, if you were a scientist or with a scientific way of looking at it, you'd be like, of course, if you want to verify demand, make something harder to get and save people still to reach for it. But if you're fear-based, if you're coming from a place of fear, you say, oh, God, I don't want to get a no. I'm so afraid of a no. I'm going to not charge any money. I'm going to do this, do that. I'm never going to launch because I'm just so afraid of a no. And so I think that what was funny was the way they described everything was just like, They were disciplined and not driven by fear. You know, I'm not saying they're not smart, but they weren't like Einstein's out there. Like it was a different muscle that that was that was being used aggressively. I remember talking to uh, David Shu from Retool on the podcast last fall. 
Uh, and he was talking about like his pricing in the early days. And he's like the definition of fearless. You know, it was just like a very small team, just the founders, I think, at that point. And their first 20 customers, they were charging like an average of like $25,000 a year <laughs> for this like half-baked product that they'd barely slapped together. Uh, and like his strategy was he just like continued to say a higher and higher price until people said no. And then he figured out what to do to get them to say yes. And then just kept raising the price until it's like, yeah, we're making 500 grand a year from our first 20 customers, which is amazing. You know, most people, I think, write that off and say that kind of stuff is impossible and don't charge a tenth of that much. You know, and it's funny. You can hear that advice just like you hear the best basketball players saying, I stayed three hours after practice. But what's funny is like doing it is the hard thing. Going into that meeting and saying a number that scares the crap out of you. That's the hard thing. Some people do it. Some people don't. But like, I don't think anyone playing on that basketball team believes that they can become a Hall of Famer without staying after practice. <laughs> I think boring all, advice nobody wants to hear. Nobody exactly, wants to stay late after practice. No, they choose every day to not stay late after practice. So I want to ask you one more question, which is a list of boring advice people have already heard. Uh, you mentioned that you you get more practice than everybody else at seeing these startups. You know, you review 800 applications a year or something crazy like that. Gosh, every uh, six months. Every so okay, almost 2,000 <laughs> applications a year. What do you What do you know from like reviewing these things that other people don't? You know, like what are the mistakes people keep making when they're applying? Besides what you've already mentioned, which is that people are trying to build technology companies without understanding technology. You know, I'll answer that question slightly differently and say, what do investors screw up? So I think a lot of times founders get discouraged from doing their startups or discouraged from pitching because they get a no from an investor. And you have to understand that nowadays, almost no one who applies to YC hasn't pitched some other investor who's told them no. And what shocks me more than anything is not, you know, what our magical process is. It's that how can we get companies that other people said no to, and they actually end up being good companies. <laughs> so it's kind of like, if you assume the typical YC founder has gotten 10 no's before even getting into YC, one, as a founder, you should think to yourself, and no's from investors, I should discount them to zero. <laughs> and two, you should think, hmm, maybe investors aren't actually good at analyzing my business. Maybe they're more oriented around how I pitch, how credentialed I am, how confident I am. Maybe those are the signals they're taking in more. And so a lot of times with YC admissions, our job is to not be too smart. Whenever we think we know too much about a space, we have to push back. And one of the things that like we end up doing, which is really funny, is that we almost end up never working with companies in our former industries. It's really easy for me to pretend to be smart about live video or video online. And that's the exact muscle I don't want to have because everyone thought Justin TV and Twitch was not going to be a good business, right? <laughs> and so I can easily fall into the trap of being like, oh, now that I'm an expert, I'd be able to pick. But Justin TV started with Justin wearing a camera on his head. I yeah. never would have invested in Justin TV, <laughs> like, never. <laughs> and so more often than not, it's about not believing that the company that's applying right now is in its final form. And the biggest mistake that investors make at every stage is thinking, is this company with this product ready to scale? And like, I think at YC, we just kind of don't think that way. We just know 
nothing is ready to scale. Like almost no companies that we fund hit product market fit. Almost every founder who says they have product market fit right now is lying. Once you product market fit and you're a software company with software margins, it's hard to not become a billion dollar company. It's hard. <laughs> like it's it's your game to fail. And so um, I think that's kind of how we think about it and how we think about it differently. And I think that weirdly, funding more companies gives us the freedom to do that. For me, funding an incremental company is so easy. I can tell myself, Michael, don't be too smart. Does this feel like a motivated founder? Can they write code? Give them a chance. Someone gave you a chance and that was basically all you had. And so, whereas I think sometimes investors are like, oh, but what are my LPs going to say? Or how can it fit into my model or this or that? And, da, 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 da. and it's like very different. I'm super curious about how, how does like someone get to your position? You know, you mentioned a bit of your history, uh, Justin TV, social cam, Twitch. What's the, what's the path that somebody takes to become the CEO of, of Y Combinator? So my job at YC is to manage the early stage accelerator along with a number of other group partners. So you know, as kind of managing director of, of YC early stage, the single most important thing that I think got me this job is I actually like advising companies. I think that um, maybe the flip side of that is I actually don't really like being an investor. Um, I think one of the things that I realized is that investors are a lot more like hunters than there are nurturers. You know, an investor, once they have ownership in a company, it's on to the next one, on to the next one, on to the next one. And oftentimes they're competing with each other and kind of it's it's just a weird game that I don't really understand and I don't find to be a lot of fun. To me, the most fun part about YC is doing office hours. That's the most fun part. And so I actually think the reason why I'm in this job is because I like the work. Because I think that when you like something irrationally and you care about something irrationally, you work irrationally hard at it. And then you achieve good results. And so this isn't for everyone. I'll have to do office hours with about 40 companies this week. A lot of people don't want to keep 40 companies in their head in a week. You know, a lot of people don't like this work. But in terms of the nitty gritty I'm sure lots of other people also like <laughs> advising startups. People are probably good at it. Probably a lot of people would want to be the CEO of YC. What was that process like for you? Were you just sort of appointed? <laughs> you know, was it like a competition for you to get this role? Was it? No, no, no. Yeah, no. Like step one, I was a YC founder. <laughs> so I did YC in 2007 and 2012. Step two, I informally advised the Airbnb founders and encouraged them to do uh, YC, which turned out to be very good for YC. Step three is after second time doing YC, I, I sold that company, Social Cam, and I was invited to be a uh, what was called then a part-time partner. And basically the only job then is to do office hours. And, and I really enjoyed it and I liked it. The next step was that I was uh, recruited to join as a full-time partner when YC was transitioning from being run by PG to being run by Sam. And once I was a partner at YC, it was just really caring about YC being successful. You know, I've made enough money to provide for my family for the rest of my life and their lives. I wouldn't have had that opportunity without YC. And so I think that like every YC alum who's contributing anything to YC feels like they have a bit of a sacred oath 
to give to others what they got or better. And so I don't really perceive this as running a business, really. Like, in some ways, the money takes care of itself when it comes to YC. Like, I think about it more like, how do I give people what I got? And then how do I give people more? Because, like, when we went through YC, there were all these things we wished YC could do that it wasn't doing yet. And so it's like, how do we give them as much as we got and more? I think is the thing that that um, I almost got addicted to. And, you know, it's funny because when I went to Yale, it was celebrating its 300th anniversary. And I remember at some point thinking, it's cool to be a founder of a billion dollar company, but how many billion dollar companies that are people are creating in the software world will be around 50 years from now, 100 years from now, will be helping people 300 years from now. And it felt like YC being a small part of building an institution that could last for 300 years and help people would actually be a lot more rewarding than being, you know, the founder of a company that, you know, might only be around for a couple decades. Like, the, like I think about YC as a business quite often, actually. And it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a business, like not very many people ask these types of questions, but like there are a lot of competing accelerators and funding mechanisms that like have never come close to I think affecting the ecosystem and funding as many founders as YC has and I think from the outside looking in it's like okay well what does YC do for marketing on one hand it almost looks effortless it looks like kind of like the Matthew effect where the rich get richer and you're all sort of benefiting in a sort of self-sustaining um, way from being the number one accelerator and the sort of benefits continue to accrue year after year but on the other hand, it's like most of the things I see YC doing is just helping founders. You know, it's like how do we how do we put on programs to help educate founders? How do we build like a co-founder matching tool to help founders? Uh, and that ends up being like I think a pretty good way to vacuum up <laughs> a lot of the founders who need help, and they end up applying to YC. You know, isn't that weird, right? Like, isn't the core part of a business providing a service that people need? Like, isn't that the core part? Like, what does the toilet paper company do? Right? Like, it's not glamorous. It's pretty simple. But, like, try living your life without toilet paper. And so I think sometimes people can make businesses into too – they become too complicated. Like, why do you use Google? Because it's the best search. And, you know, I'd argue that's slipping now. But, like, you know, Google is going to tell you all kinds of crazy shit and organize the world information, da da da, da. But you use Google because most of the time when you do a Google search, you find what you're looking for. I think that, like – the reason why YC works as a business is because most of the founders who do YC think YC had a disproportionate positive impact on their company. That's it, right? And like every batch is an opportunity to perpetuate that or to fuck it up. So in some ways, it's like we're only as good as our last batch because those are the people going out in the world saying, YC changed my trajectory or didn't. Yeah, it, it kind of harkens back to uh, that point you made earlier about how people sort of uh, begin throwing away the basic ingredients of the cake. And for any business, like the basic ingredient is like provide value to your customers, <laughs> like do the thing that they expect of you. Uh, and it's and in some ways, it's so mundane and so boring that it's easy to lose sight of. And everyone focuses on the all the bells and whistles. But I have my own like, you know, sort of theory for like, okay, what is what does YC do to provide value, right? So you've got like, all the different things you do for people who aren't even part of YC yet. Uh, but then as a founder, like what is like the secret sauce that makes YC tick? I want to go through my list. And I want to hear what you think about these different things. Number one, it's the momentum that comes from being part of a batch of people who are all sort of pushing in the same direction at the same time, I think is 
extremely energizing and amazing. When I went through YC, it was just a ton of people all working hard to get their startups off the ground. And at Indie Hackers, like I mostly talk to people who are like working in their basement by themselves. And it's really easy to quit and give up. So that to me was like one of the, the number one things. Number two was, uh, again, the peers, like having a network of people who can potentially be your first customers was extremely, it's extremely easy to get started. It's like, okay, I'm building this B2B tool. <laughs> who am I going to sell to you? Oh, look, there's 200 companies that I know all around me. Like that's a huge first step. And if you can like, you know, get that sort of confidence and get into the sort of positive feedback loop of having found your first customers, that's awesome. And it's not even just like the companies around you. It's also all the past YC companies that you now have access to and can sell to you. And so that's like kind of a tremendously unfair advantage that I think you have going through something like YC that you don't uh, on the outside. Those two seem to be like the, the biggest, obviously like demo day and access to all these investors who are sort of trusting that because you've been through YC, you're already sort of pre-vetted. Um, yeah. Obviously you still have to be a good company and pitch well, et cetera, and, and show good metrics, but like that's obviously super helpful. And then there's some like psychological stuff. It's almost like getting into like Harvard or MIT or something. Like once you get in, you kind of feel like there's this expectation that you, you're going to do well. Like everyone's happy that you got in and you don't want to be a failure. <laughs> and so that kind of <laughs> motivates you to try harder. And then there's like all the obvious stuff. Like you've got advisors, you've got obviously the funding that YC gets you. But like those first three things I think are sort of underrated. What am I, what am I missing? What do you think about sort of secret sauce of YC? I think you nailed it. I think that the biggest misconception is the single greatest value of YC is, is fundraising. And I, I, over 80% of the companies who do YC raise the money they need on demo day and 2% become successful billion dollar businesses. So clearly money ain't the number one deciding factor. I think that um, maybe the last thing that I will add is that I think YC is, or at least tries to be very good at telling you what you can ignore. An early stage an early stage company is basically imagine being a firefighter and you go into a neighborhood and there are 20 houses on fire and you don't have enough folks to fight all 20 fires. What do you do? And I think what a lot of YC does is kind of tell you, okay, well, like I can't promise you'll successfully fight the fires. Eventually, you'll have to fight all of the fires. But let me give you some hints. The wind's blowing in this direction. So maybe you want to fight the fires over here before over there. This house is all by itself in a big rock quarry. So it can't infect anyone else, right? So maybe you can ignore that one for a while. And kind of giving you the confidence to be like, I don't have to fight 20 fires all at the same time. It's counterintuitive because so many things are broken in early stage startup that sometimes a founder cannot make any progress because they're trying to fix everything. And a lot of times what they need us to do is not tell them how to solve a problem, but tell them whether they can ignore it for now. It's counterintuitive how many problems you can ignore as a startup pre-product market fit. And that's also another point for team discipline. Because it's hard to ignore stuff as a founder. It's much easier to go down every single rabbit hole that you come across to fix every single problem you see uh, and try to make everything yes. perfect than it is to sort of let some fire simmer and ignore them and focus on the thing that matters. And I think at YC, you guys have a lot of distractions too. I mean, yeah. to be the kind of institution that you are, uh, you've got a target on your back. You've got a lot of detractors. People complain that YC doesn't do enough to fund underrepresented minorities and women. People criticize YC for being elitist and exclusive, but then they also criticize YC for accepting too many companies and becoming too big. Okay, um, yeah. And even in my own time in YC, 
I felt like YC really did contribute to a popularity contest mentality. There were a lot of people who just wanted to be scenesters. They wanted to be part of YC because it was cool and they could hobnob with the best investors and founders. As somebody who is running this ship, what are the biggest misconceptions about YC that you want to change people's minds about? Uh, what are the biggest criticisms that you want to sort of um, fix or reverse in people's minds? You know, it's funny. Um, this woman named Phaedra did YC in 2018, and she actually came and spoke today to the batch. She's running a company named Promise. And um, Promise is effectively building Stripe for government, like an easy way to pay government and receive payments from government. And um, she's had a long and very successful career before being a startup founder. And one of her jobs was to be the manager for Prince. And she got this piece of advice from Prince that she gave to me, actually. That's one of the hidden things people don't realize about YC is how much the founders actually advise us and teach us. And one of the things she told me that Prince said to her is that if you don't want any booze, you can only play in your backyard. But if you play in Madison Square Garden, you're going to get booze. Deal with it. And I've had to really take this to heart, right? Like part of building something successful means that you have to be willing to accept criticism because criticism is going to come your way, both justified and unjustified. And so I've really had to kind of be a little bit zen about it and be like, that's the role. Once you become kind of a pillar in this industry, part of the role of being that pillar, part of the responsibility is to get criticism and respond to the criticism and, and try to be better. You know, from that perspective, it's, it's, it's positively motivational. We have the privilege to be criticized, to be important enough where people think maybe affecting YC can affect the whole startup community. And so, you know, I used to take it a lot more personally than I do now. Now, misconception is, is, is different. I would say that, like, it's always been cool to shit on things. Right. It's like it always has been a human technique of like by putting something down, you feel above it. And like for people who want to kind of shit on YC just to get that personal win, it's like, OK, fine. Like you do you, but I'm not going to sit here worrying about that. Right. For people who want to honestly understand why YC is going to deliver me value. Oh, man, I'm happy to engage. And like screw just engaging. Talk to our users. Like, you talk to 10 alum, you'll hear the good, the bad, and the ugly, make a call. Um, and so, you know, to me, the folks who are want to hide their product, who want to pitch all widely and then kind of hide, so what does that thing do? What does it look like? Oh, you don't have to worry about that. It's behind the curtain. I'm like, hey, look, we got 6,000 plus alumni. You want to know whether I'm lying or not? Go reference check. <laughs> okay, let's switch gears here for a second. One of the things I do on the show is I ask founders about revenue numbers. I ask about the financials behind their company so that we can get a better sense of how they run. I have no idea to what extent you can be transparent here, but I do have a lot of questions about the financials of YC. Hit me and then I, I will either dodge or accept the bullets. Okay. <laughs> uh, how does YC raise and, and make its money? Um, how profitable is YC itself? Oh, let's do one at a time. Let's do one at a time. So, okay. so YC has a, a number of funds that we've raised from LPs, um, mm. traditional institutional LPs like large universities. And how big are these funds? Oh, we announced them. I think that um, 
YC has raised now uh, at least over $2 billion, probably, probably higher than that. And how profitable is YC as an organization? Like, how are these funds doing? Oh, they're doing well. And how are the, the how are the how are the partners doing? <laughs> like, what is it? So one one kind of maybe not secret, but something that maybe people don't realize about YC is that um, unlike almost every investment fund, YC um, is an equal equity partnership. So all of the partners of YC, both investing and operational, are all um, equal equity holders. Oh, cool! I wasn't aware of that. My next question was actually, how are the partners doing financially? You know, is YC mentoring billionaires and hundred millionaires on the partner side of things, or is that only on the founder side of things? Because I would guess that Paul Graham is a billionaire by now. Uh, like in everything, it takes a long time. Hell, Stripe was funded in what? Oh eight. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's not liquid yet. <laughs> so um, I'll say this: PG doing extremely well. And I think that all of the partners who work at YC for long enough will do very well as well. And where do you think YC is going to be? By the way, but it takes yeah. time. These startups don't happen overnight. And, and where is YC going to be? I mean, obviously, you can't know the answer to this definitively, but like, where do you think things are going 10 years from now? On the outside looking in, it seems like, you know, the directions YC is moving in are putting out more and more startup, like founder friendly resources, and then just funding more and more and more companies. Does that scale forever? At some point, does the model change? What is what is the future of YC? I can think of three things that I believe are vital. Number one is continuing to invest in the core accelerator experience. Like YC's accelerator program is the, the, the core, the base of our business. And it can't ever be taken for granted. It has to always improve. It has to always iterate. Every batch, we have to figure out how to make it better. So that's number one. Number two, the internet is coming to the rest of the world and it's coming fast. So over the next 10 years, YC will become more and more international, is my belief, um, as the internet becomes more and more international. And then number three is investing in our founders, both pre and post batch. So we have the founder matching tools and startup school and the YC startup library and all the outreach we do pre-batch, getting the word out, here are some things you should do if you want to start a startup. And then post-batch, I think what most people don't see in YC at all is that it doesn't end on demo day. So we have a program for every founder who raises a series A in YC. We re-batch them with new peers and go through all the challenges of being a post-series A company. We have another program called the Growth Program, which is like post-product market fit, 50 plus people. You had to start building an org, building an exec team, da, 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 da. We have another program for that. And we batch you with companies in that stage. And we bring back alumni speakers for both of those programs who can speak to those challenges as opposed to the finding product market fit challenge. We've got the continuity funds. We can actually fund you later on and write you a large check. And so... Um, we have a program called Work at a Startup, which is effectively a common application where anyone can apply to every YC company with one application. And so we want to be part of your hiring your first 10 employees. And so I think the, the last most important theme is how do we continue to add value post-demo day? You know, one of the things that goes to my mind is, one, YC should be with you from cradle to IPO. And two, 
YC should earn its 7% every year. And like the analogy that I come up with this is actually, and this is slightly douchey, it's actually um, the Tesla. So I got a Tesla years ago and three months in, a little alert pops up on the screen and it says your car has an update. Here are the six ways your car is going to get better. Now, that's not how cars work. We all know that the only thing that happens with a car is every minute you own it, it's getting worse. <laughs> and like Tesla kind of flipped that around. It was like, right. no, no. Like, and so the way I think about YC is that like maybe you did the YC seven years ago. There still should be something you're pointing to right now that YC can is doing to help you. Most of the people listening to this are, are super early stage founders. They're people trying to decide what to work on. Uh, and in my experience, like one of the like biggest things that sort of stops them from getting started, besides you know a lack of confidence, is this overwhelming feeling that they just don't have something to work on. They might have technical skills, they might have the motivation, but they're like, I don't have an idea that's worthy of starting anything. Um, and lots of people have their own different frameworks for like how to get over that problem and how to think about that. What's your sort of personal take on idea generation and, and figuring out what to work on as a founder when you think you've got the skills and the confidence, but you have no idea what to build? So much of what we have to do is get people to unlearn the bad things that they somehow picked up along the road. And so I like to say that every founder has a business brain and a problem brain. Their problem brain is all the shit that pisses them off in their life. Whether it's the problems they have or the problems that their parents have or their friends have or their relatives have. It's the stuff that just pisses them off. And the really good problems are the ones where they've tried to solve it. They've tried to do something and it, it doesn't work or it's only half-baked, their solution, yada, yada, yada. That problem brain has been learning their whole life on their personal experience and is one of the smartest brains that people have. And you know that because if you hand someone a product that says it solves someone's problem and it doesn't, how quickly do most people throw that freaking product away? How quickly can most people use that product brain, try to use the product, this doesn't fucking do anything, and just like move on, right? Your product brain is really smart. Your business brain is not only not smart, it's more often holding you back. Your business brain is the brain that tells you, is this a good business? Is this a good idea? Is this something that VCs would fund? You have no experience there. No experience. The first time founder has nothing in their business brain, but a lot of bad beliefs learned from VC Twitter and the, God forbid their friends who don't know anything either. And just a bunch of stupidity, shark tank, God knows what, right? Random shit they heard about somewhere like, and so my job in many ways is get people to ignore their business brain and double down on their product brain. The biggest thing the founders screw up is ignore their product brain, problem brain, and double down on their business brain. And it's like, if I could solve that, man, I would just retire. Because like, you know, the saddest thing in the world is when a founder works on a problem that they know nothing about because they think it's going to be a good business because they like worked it out on Excel. It's, it's a joke. And when you try to advise that kind of company, there's almost nowhere to go 
because it's like you don't know anything about this problem. You don't even like, you know, I'll get emails from first time founders all the time being like, can you tell me how to find my first customer? I'm like, you don't know anyone with the problem you're solving? Like, why did you even decide to solve the problem? Like, you have no idea who has this problem? And like, oh, well, because, you know, uh, we're building this for that, like YouTube for NFTs or whatever the fuck it is, right? And it's just like, okay, you have a snazzy one-liner, but you're not actually solving a problem in anyone's life. So, you know, to me, that's the kind of thing that's tricky is that, I don't think it's cool. I think that it's become cool to think that you've got a good business brain. And I think most early stage products, people shit on. So most people, when they're trying to solve their own problems, their peers shit on them. And most people, when they try to sound like business people, like MBAs, their peers are impressed with them when they use jargon and fancy words and all this stupid shit. And so it's like, once again, we get back to like, your peers are not your guide here. And like, if you're not brave enough to do something that your peers think is stupid, I can't think of a YC company where the peers thought it was a good idea and it worked. Like everyone thinks Brian from Coinbase is this genius. Now the dude could barely raise 500 K on YC demo day. The dude gave away free Bitcoin if you created a Coinbase account in the beginning and nobody cared, right? And so it's like if you aren't brave enough to be Brian when everyone thinks he's a dick, when everyone thinks he doesn't know anything, when everyone thinks he's on the wrong path, there's no way you can be a Brian today. Absolutely no way. Um, but man, that's hard. It's hard for most people to understand that. I remember in the 2011 um, YC batch, we used to do this thing where we would vote every couple of weeks on who we thought the best companies in our batch were. Who do we look up to the most? Who do we think we're going to succeed? And it turned out that at the end of the batch, like none of the companies who were consistently ranked the highest actually did well. We were all wrong. And so it didn't really matter what our opinions were, even though these founders we kept voting for probably thought they were super cool. Like It just didn't matter. And so if I could sum up your advice, it's number one, stop being afraid. And number two, stop trying to look cool among your peers because that is not the measure of success. <laughs> you know, we have this thing at YC called like, don't peak in high school. If demo day is the best day in the history of your company, that's not a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> don't peak in high school. Michael Seibel, thanks for coming on the Indie Hackers podcast. Can you let listeners know where they can go to learn more about uh, what you're up to, where you write and share your ideas, and also uh, more info about Y Combinator. Yeah, so of course, YCombinator.com is the, the easiest place. Anyone who wants startup advice, I direct you to either the YC Startup Library or um, StartupSchool.org. And then, um, uh, I hate saying this because I'm not sure that I want people to spend any time on Twitter, but if you want to see me writing stuff, usually it's Twitter at MWSeibel or on my website, MichaelSeibel.com. All right, thanks again, Michael. Thank you.